Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gun violence, sexual assault, substance abuse, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's May 15, 1992. Chalino Sanchez graces the stage at a club in Sinaloa, Mexico. He sings one note, and the crowd goes wild. It's one of the first times Chalino has played a show in Sinaloa, even though he grew up here. It's a true homecoming. Nothing can bring him down. That is, until a fan squeezes through the crowd to the front of the stage. He hands him a note. Chalino thinks it's a song request. It's not. The color drains from the singer's face. For a split second, fear fills his eyes. Then Chalino crumples the paper, drops it to the ground, and goes right back to singing. No one knows what the note says, but Chalino's fans soon refer to it as the death note. Because less than 12 hours later, Chalino Sanchez is dead. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. This week, we're doing something special, spotlighting an episode of Cold Cases we think you might like. Every Monday on Cold Cases, I tell the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will help provide the missing pieces. Others will still be left puzzled, searching for answers. Today, we're exploring the unsolved murder of Mexican corrido singer Chalino Sanchez. Three decades after his death, theories about what happened still abound. As we dive into Chalino's life, it'll become clear why this cold case has stretched on for so long. Unsolved Murders will be back next week, but more on this case coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. For many, the story of Chalino Sanchez ends almost as soon as it begins. For others, the end isn't the end at all. There's no one way to tell Chalino's story, but to truly understand him, you have to understand that his music and his actual life are inextricable from each other. Chalino is best known for writing a form of Mexican ballad known as the Corrido. 
You can think of corridos as the epics of our time. They tell stories of real people's heroism. Chalino pioneers a subgenre known as narco-corridos. He writes about the anti-heroes of rural Mexico, the outlaws, the bandits, and the narcos, Spanish slang for drug dealers. The importance of this will unfold over the course of this episode, but for now, it's important to know that his fans, who span Southern California and Mexico, celebrate his authenticity. He isn't some refined pop star. He writes what he knows. By the spring of 1992, Chalino Sanchez is 31 years old and he lives in Los Angeles. He's a rising star in the music industry, as well as a loving husband to his wife, Maricela, and a doting father to his eight-year-old son and young daughter. He isn't a chart topper, but his loyal fans cram into venues to see him. Sometimes his shows go over capacity. Some fans wonder why Chalino hardly ever returns to his home state of Sinaloa, Mexico to perform. He left when he was a teenager and hasn't been back since. But to those familiar with the world Chalino came from, it's fairly obvious why he won't go back to Sinaloa. The state is home to one of, if not the, largest cartels in Mexico. When Chalino sings that bad company leaves nothing good, he knows what he's talking about. The singer might be fearless, but he's not dumb. Sure, he's got fans in Mexico, but he doesn't see a reason to push his luck. There are plenty of stages in L.A. That changes when a fan opens fire on him at a concert in Coachella, California. We'll talk more about that story later, but for now, you just need to know that this event makes Chalino realize he could die at any time in any place. Out of caution, he gets his affairs in order. He gives away his prized gun collection, sells the rights to his music, and buys a house for his wife and kids. With everything taken care of at home, he feels like he has significantly less to worry about if he takes a trip back to Sinaloa. Then, a few months after the Coachella attack, a promoter contacts him and offers to pay him a good amount of money to play three nights in Culiacan, a city in Sinaloa. Chalina knows that his Sinaloa fans have been begging him to come play for them, and the trip seems to be well worth the risk. But his friends and family think it's a bad idea. Even though he rarely discusses it, they know Chalino had a dark past in Sinaloa, and that past could come back to bite him at any moment. Chalino ignores everyone's advice. He ignores them because he needs the money from the shows, and because he's a valiente, a tough guy like the men in his songs. He agrees to the deal. Everyone's concerned, but according to those who knew him, Chalino believed in fate, that only God decided when a person died. That's not exactly comforting to his loved ones, but it's too late to stop him. In May of 1992, the 31-year-old returns to Sinaloa, and his homecoming is all anyone can talk about. Everywhere he goes, people shower him with love. He's a hometown hero. Chalino can't help but think that maybe everything really will work out. On May 15th, 2,000 people crowd into the Salon Bougainvillea's nightclub in Culiacan to see Chalino play. The crowd goes wild when he struts onto stage. 
he dons his signature look, a suit paired with a cowboy hat and boots. He also has a loaded gun tucked into his waistband. Cholino always carries a gun with him, even on stage. He knows he might need to protect himself at any moment. But tonight, he tries not to think about that. He just wants this show to go well. At first, it does. Until he reads the death note. It's unsettling, but Cholino shakes it off. He turns to his accordion player and best friend, Nacho Hernandez, and delivers his famous catchphrase, I don't sing, I bark. He dives into another song, then another and another until he finishes the set. After the concert, he hops into a car with his brothers, Espiridion and Francisco, his cousin Carmelo, and a couple of women. They're on their way to an after party. They talk and laugh when suddenly the car stops. They are intercepted by two Chevrolet Suburbans. Armed men jump out of the cars and flash their badges. They're looking for Chalino. They say their boss wants to see him. They grab Espiridion, perhaps mistaking him for the singer. It's possible these men are actual police. According to author Elijah Wald, in parts of Mexico, the line between cartel members and police officers can be blurry. Often, police are on the cartel's payroll, serving as gunmen and bodyguards. Either way, Cholino doesn't want to take the chance. He's not afraid of death, but he doesn't want his brothers or friends to get hurt. He offers the assailants money, but they refuse it. This is a bad sign. The men aren't messing around. If Chalino wants to avoid bloodshed, he'll have to go with them. Chalino pretends his brother is just a fan he met at the concert and tells the men he is Chalino Sanchez. The men let Espiridion go and Chalino gets into their car. The rest of the group watches as the SUVs speed off. They're shocked at first, but once they realize they're safe, the panic sets in. No one wants to say it, but they're all thinking it. They're in cartel territory. If armed men jump out of SUVs and take you away, it rarely ends well. The night passes by filled with anxious anticipation, and when the sun rises, two farmers make a horrific discovery. The morning after Chalino Sanchez was abducted from his vehicle, two farmers find Chalino's body near an irrigation canal along the highway. It appears he was blindfolded, bound, and shot at least two times in the head. But no one knows who did it or why. And those who have the power to find the answers don't. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. At least from the outside, 
The Mexican government doesn't seem interested in investigating Chalino's death. As we mentioned earlier, it's entirely possible the armed men who abducted Chalino from his vehicle were police officers. In fact, the Mexican state of Sinaloa is dominated by the Sinaloa cartel, and they have been since the cartel grew to power in the 1980s. The infamous head of the cartel is none other than Joaquin Guzman Loera, a.k.a. El Chapo. This is the same El Chapo that recently dominated international headlines for his capture and daring escape from a Mexican prison. He's been recaptured since then, but he was rising to power in the 1980s. He's known for bribing and controlling the leaders of his local government and its police force. It's even been alleged that El Chapo holds significant influence over Mexico's federal government, and there's plenty of evidence that that may be the case. However, the specifics of cartel corruption in Mexico are not as important to Chilino's story as the effects of this corruption. Mexico's murder rates are extraordinarily high. For reference, between 2007 and 2014, more people were murdered in Mexico than civilians were killed during those same years in the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Keep in mind, Chalino was murdered in 1992, 15 years before those statistics were taken. Murder statistics from that time are difficult to verify, but some studies put the murder rate in that year as more than 16,000 people. This is a higher murder rate than Mexico saw in both 2007 and 2008, and that high murder rate could have a fairly dark explanation. For decades, the cartels paid the government to look the other way and sometimes even partake in their crimes. As such, the overwhelming majority of murders that occur in Mexico are never investigated, whether the cartel is involved or not. We don't know if the cartels or the government are directly responsible for Chalino's murder. It's entirely possible they had nothing to do with it and simply ignored the crime as they had many others. Whatever the case, the government's inaction isn't a secret. If anything, it drives fervor amongst his fans. In fact, in the eyes of his fans, Chalino's violent death doesn't just validate his image and music, it elevates his work to mythical levels. You see, as a young man, Chalino spent time in and out of prison. He wrote songs about the men he did time with, and they loved him for it. He started his career by selling them the cassette tapes of their own songs and sold drugs on the side to make ends meet. Despite his raspy voice, his writing was so moving that the friends of his fellow inmates wanted copies of the cassettes. Because he wrote touching songs about everyday people using everyday language, many Mexicans living in Los Angeles connected with his work. He started selling tapes at swap meets by the thousands. Even as he sold, Mexican radio stations refused to play his music. They found his rough singing voice, lower-class diction, and his music's focus on criminals to be the direct opposite of the highly polished Mexican pop music of the time. But the radio's rejection of him only helped his popularity grow. He made music about the common man for the common man and his fame was entirely built on word of mouth. People saw Chalino as one of them, but when he died, 
they began to see him as the best of them. Almost overnight, Chalino Sanchez becomes a legend. News of his death spreads through the streets, and people rush to buy as many of his cassettes as they can. The Spanish radio stations that had formerly shunned his music suddenly tell the public about his death, and for an entire night, they only play his songs. High schoolers cry about his loss, and Chalino's music can be heard blaring from cars and homes throughout Los Angeles. His label puts out remixes of popular tracks. Other artists pen their own corridos about Chalino. Radio DJs play his love song, Neves de Enero, non-stop. When journalist Gustavo Arellano considered Chalino's legacy in 2017, he described him as, quote, the most influential musician in the United States of the past quarter century. This is a story old as time. Popular musicians die, and suddenly they skyrocket to fame they'd never imagined. Several years after Chilino's death, rappers Tupac and Biggie see similar fates. They're murdered, then mythicized. In fact, there's a popular image of Chalino and Tupac mid-handshake. Most agree it's a fake photo, but the idea is clear. Two writers of hard times and unrest frozen together in their immortalized forms. However, as tough as it might be to imagine, Chalino Sanchez is far more famous to Mexicans than Tupac and Biggie are to Americans. In fact, according to Chalino's old recording engineer, Angel Parra, quote, In L.A., without exaggeration, 50% of the Mexican music that's recorded here is based on the legacy he left. Many young Mexicans living in America grew up rejecting their parents' folk music and their Hispanic heritage. Instead, they tried to blend in with the gangster rap and hip-hop culture that was popular at the time. When Chalino rose to fame, he reconnected an entire generation of Mexicans to the culture of their past while making it feel relevant to the present. When he died, he made it cool to be a Mexican again. Chilino's fans know the state of Mexican law enforcement, so they expect Chilino's murder will never officially be solved. Yet, just as Chilino told heroic tales about the lives and deaths of other tough guys, every one of Chilino's fans feels compelled to tell a story about his. In a short time, it seems like every person knows exactly what happened to Chilino. And their explanations range from the mundane to the grand and... Poetic. For all their differences, everyone agrees he was killed for a reason. Some people look to events in Chilino's life to find those reasons, and there's one particular event from his childhood that receives much of their focus. It's the early 70s in Sinaloa, Mexico. Chalino's about 11 years old, and it'll be years before he discovers his talent for songwriting. Right now, all he cares about is being a kid and messing around. According to Eric Galindo, creator and host of the podcast Idolo, the Ballad of Chalino Sanchez, pretty much everyone who lives in certain parts of Sinaloa either knows someone in the cartels or someone who's been affected by their violence. Well, that's certainly the case for Chalino. He's already well acquainted with violence and bloodshed. 
growing up in this world, to him, being a man means defending yourself and your loved ones by any means necessary. Those beliefs are tested one day when his older sister Juana comes home naked and crying. In between sobs, she tells her family that two local men kidnapped and raped her. As Eric Galindo reports, some relatives of Chalino Sanchez could not confirm that the assault occurred, only saying that Chalino had been involved in a fight for his family's honor. However, in the most common version of this story, Juana's rapist escaped, but his friend and accomplice remained in town. His name was Hector Perez. Chalino remembers this name, and with every second that goes by, he gets angrier. He fixates on Perez. He wants to kill him for hurting his sister. But Chalino's just a kid. He can't do anything to a grown man. He makes a vow. Someday, he'll get revenge. In Mexican culture in particular, family honor is paramount. That's not to excuse violence, but it's important to remember. Chalino keeps these feelings close to his chest for years. Around his 15th birthday, he gets his first gun as a gift. He holds the revolver in his hands, reverent. He knows what this means. He can finally avenge his sister. Not long after, in November of 1977, Chalino goes to a party at a local elementary school to celebrate the Mexican Revolution. It's a family-friendly gathering. Kids are running around. It's not clear if he had intel that leads him here or if it's pure happenstance. Either way, it seems like fate. Because there, across the room, is Hector Perez. He's with his two brothers, and they're all armed. Chalino's face twists in anger. He stares as Perez jokes around with his brothers. Chalino can't believe this man can be so casual. But Perez doesn't even know who Chalino is. That gives Chalino the element of surprise. Soon, he sees his chance. He pulls his gun out from his waistband, crosses the room, and fires. He shoots Perez three times, point-blank, killing him. Partygoers scream and flee. Parents grab their kids and glasses shatter. Chalino stands in the center of it all with a smoking gun. Perez's entourage returns fire. Chalino gets away without getting shot and takes pride in himself for avenging his sister. But he knows he's a dead man walking. He has to find a way out of Sinaloa. He makes his way north and manages to escape across the border to America. That's how Chalino ends up in Los Angeles, long before he writes a single song. Some fans think that even though Chalino successfully ran from his crimes, he could not run forever. They believe the Perez family waited 15 years, then avenged the death of their own, just like Chalino did for his sister. However, so much time passed between Hector and Chalino's deaths that this explanation seems less likely. If one of Hector's relatives was determined enough to hold a grudge for nearly two decades, it seems likely they would have tracked him down long before he returned to Sinaloa. 
This reasonable doubt leads people to seek out other possible explanations for Chalino's death. The more we learn about his life, the more possible explanations arise. Once Chalino reaches Los Angeles, he moves in with relatives and takes whatever jobs he can to survive. He washes cars, farms the fields, and dabbles in small-time drug dealing. It's also around this time that tragedy strikes. In 1984, someone shoots Chalino's brother Armando in a Tijuana hotel. Some say it's a drug deal gone wrong, but we don't know for sure. When Chalino hears the news, he's devastated. He loved his brother. In his grief, he writes a corrido to commemorate him. It's the first time Chalino's ever written a corrido, and it just comes to him. He sings about Armando being a man of valor who a coward killed. This moment shapes the rest of his life, but Chalino is too wounded by his loss to realize it. He focuses in on his day-to-day life and commits various small-time crimes. In the midst of his grief, he's captured by police and sent to a Tijuana prison merely weeks after his brother was killed. There, he writes corridos about the other inmates to pass the time. They love his work and pay him to write songs about their lives. The better Chalino does, the more he realizes he can make a living writing music. After a few months, Chalino is released. He immediately gets his foot in the door to the music world. He starts out writing for other artists. Eventually, he records his own songs. Once he does, nothing is the same. His career takes off. By January 1992, about eight years after he gets out of prison, he becomes the king of the corrido. But even at the height of his fame, he can't escape violence. The next time he gets on stage, a disgruntled man threatens his life. And some people don't survive the attack. It's January 20th, 1992 in the Coachella Valley. This is a few years before the Coachella Music Festival took over the town. In the early 90s, the valley is a predominantly Latino working-class area, and here, they love Chalino Sanchez. 400 people pack into the Plaza Los Arcos dance hall to see him. It's worth every penny. 31-year-old Chalino rocks the crowd. They roar with excitement. Chalino loves to please the audience. He takes song requests. At one point, a man shouts for a song, but Chalino ignores him. It's not clear whether he does it on purpose. The man moves closer to the stage. He repeats his request over and over. Chalino probably doesn't realize it, but the man is both drunk and high. When Chalino ignores him again, he's had enough. The man, 33-year-old Edward Gallegos, jumps onto the stage, draws a gun, and fires. Chaos erupts. People rush the doors. They smash windows trying to escape. Chalino pulls out his own gun and returns fire. The two trade somewhere between 9 to 15 shots. Chalino's hit twice in the chest. His best friend and band member, Nacho Hernandez, is also hit. Gallegos leaps off the stage and runs into the crowd. 
someone stops him and wrestles his gun away, then they shoot Gallegos in the mouth. The damage incapacitates him, but he doesn't die. The cops arrive to absolute mayhem. People are still trying to escape, unsure whether more gunfire will rain down on them. By the time things calm down, the authorities count at least 10 people injured and one dead. Chalino is sent to the hospital, where doctors determine he's in critical condition. After some time, he pulls through. But everyone is left wondering, why did this happen? Soon, a theory emerges that Gallegos was a cartel hitman, and detectives look into it. They learn Gallegos is a mechanic with a history of alcohol and heroin use, and that he was high at the time of the shooting. This doesn't meet the profile of a skilled cartel killer, so authorities determine that the Coachella incident was a random act of violence. Gallegos is ultimately sentenced to 15 years to life for killing the bystander and attempting to kill Chalino. But still, many fans aren't convinced that this was a random act of violence, and instead, Gallegos's actions was just the first of several attempts to come. After all, Chalino dies just four months after this initial attack, so some fans insist that Gallegos was a hitman, just a failed one, so the cartel hired someone to finish the job in Sinaloa. Of course, no evidence has ever been found that can prove this theory to be true. For the fans who lost their idol, none of these explanations adequately describe what happened to Chalino Sanchez. Decades pass before anyone makes a new break in the case, and this time, it holds weight. Eric Galindo has been a fan of Chalino since childhood. He remembers the day he heard the news that the singer died. Like many, he's searched for answers ever since. But his search is more in-depth than most others. Eric went on to create and co-host the investigative podcast, Idolo, the Ballad of Chalino Sanchez. In early 2022, his research brings a new theory to light. He interviews Nacho Hernandez, Chalino's best friend and bandmate. More than anybody, Nacho knew what Chalino's life was like. He'd played with Chalino since his career began. He'd taken a bullet in the leg during the shooting in Coachella, and he saw Chalino's body in person in Mexico. Nacho mourned his friend, and when people say Chalino was only famous because he was murdered, Nacho disagrees. In fact, according to the book True Tales from Another Mexico by Sam Quinones, Nacho believes, quote, he'd been a phenomenon without promotion, and with promotion, he grew even bigger. His bad luck was that he became famous after he died. With his life and career directly affected by the killing, Nacho offers his take on what happened. Here's how the story goes. Rumors that Chilino had been a narco himself, or that he had in some way been connected to the cartels, had followed him around for years. Some fans even believe some of his songs were actually about his first-hand experiences in the drug trade, even though he claimed they were about other people. According to some people, there is some validity to these rumors, and in 1992, Chalino's secret life as a drug peddler may have come to a head. 
Many believe that a few weeks before his final show, a hitman named Rene Escobar tried to kill him. Once again, this might explain why Chalino's friends are so hesitant when he gets an offer to perform in Sinaloa. Then, around the same time Chalino agrees to the deal, someone shoots and kills Rene. The cartel blames Chalino. They think he knew Rene was after him, so he killed him first. But Nacho says Chalino played no role in Rene's death. He doesn't understand why the cartel blames him and goes so far as to speculate that Chalino angered them in some other way. The cartel simply used Rene's killing as an excuse to seek revenge. Eric Galindo investigates Nacho's story. He struggles to verify the tale, but he eventually uncovers the name of a high-ranking cartel member, Valdemar Escobar. He thinks Valdemar is Rene's brother. If he's right, then Valdemar might have killed Chalino to avenge his brother's death. Eric tries to interview the narco, but he can't physically track Valdemar down. Then, he gets a chance to speak with a different high-ranking narco. The narco says he wants to remain anonymous and that Eric can only ask yes or no questions. During the interview, Eric asks if Valdemar is related to Rene. The man says yes. Did Valdemar kill Cholino? Yes. Eric can't believe it. Has he finally solved the mystery after all these years? But right before they hang up, the man says that everything he's told Eric is just what he heard because he wasn't there. Then, click. Eric laid out many theories in his podcast, and it's possible that by talking to this anonymous narco, he may have discovered the truth about Chalino Sanchez's death. He may have solved a seemingly unsolvable mystery. Or he simply came across another man who is spreading tall tales. Nobody can really know for sure. As such, three decades after his death, the murder of Chalino Sanchez remains a mystery. There have been no real leads and no known attempts by authorities to investigate. In the end, we have no answers, only theories. Before Chalino took his final trip to Mexico, he sold all of the rights to his music to the MuseArt record label for $115,000. He thought he made a good deal, and he used the money as a down payment on a house for his wife, Maricela, and their son and daughter. Yet by the time he died, half of the house was still unpaid for. Maricela stood to lose the house, but luckily for her, its former owner was a fan of her husband's. He gifted the rest of the house to her in a deed, and she still lived in the house as she raised their children. Just like any wife would, she mourned the death of her husband, but her relationship to his music became far more complicated. As Chalino's fame rose, the royalties for his music became worth millions of dollars, and Maricela never saw a penny. Instead, she had to work hard to raise her children, and sometimes she only made ends meet with the generous help of friends and family. The only thing MuseArt ever gave her were golden copies of Chalino's records, and she had to fight to get them. She honored her husband by decorating her home with those records, 
but she did her best to make sure her son, Adon, only emulated the positive aspects of his father's legacy. She raises him as a child singer and manages his career. She encourages him to sing Mexican folk music, but she refuses to let him write, sing, or enjoy the very songs that made his father famous, the Narcocorridos. She notes that most of the subjects of her husband's songs were either dead or in prison, and she begins calling Narcocorridos dirty corridos. In Sam Quinones's book, True Tales from Another Mexico, she even goes so far as to say, quote, they're harmful for young people. For Adon's part, the boy eagerly follows his mother's advice. He connects to the father he lost when he was eight years old through song and soon proves to be just as talented, even as he takes a different path. While his father's work was a rejection of the polished Mexican pop of his time, Adon becomes a singer of love songs and gains fame as a teen heartthrob writing music that appeals to young girls. Yet, even as he avoided his father's violent life, he still faces death at a tragically young age. On March 27, 2004, 19-year-old Adon Sanchez dies in a car accident while touring in Mexico. His mother, Maricela, is forced to mourn once again. Yet as she grieves the loss of her son and husband, she tries to remain calm and composed. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, she wipes away tears while saying, quote, They expected to see a mother falling apart, full of tears. But I was outside, consoling the girls who had no idea it was me. As a family, we've always carried ourselves that way. We endured hunger, cold, and humiliations, but we always were strong in front of people. Until the very end, we were like that, calm and strong. She acknowledges the pain, but she doesn't show it publicly. Just like her former husband proved to be a genuinely tough and resilient person, she honors him and her son with her behavior, even through grief. And while Cellino has been dead for quite some time, his spirit lives on. One of his most popular love songs, Nieves de Enero, has been streamed over 135 million times on Spotify. In English, the final lyrics roughly translate to Seeing that the years have passed and I don't plan to die waiting. The snows of January are gone. May flowers have arrived. You've already put up with a macho and my bitter pain fell on me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cold Cases. If you'd like to learn more about Chalino Sanchez, amongst the many sources we used, we found Futuro Studios and Sonora Media's podcast, Idolo, The Ballad of Chalino Sanchez, and True Tales from Another Mexico by Sam Quinones, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. We'll see you then. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast, with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boisreau. The show is developed by Mickey Taylor. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. 
Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Alex Burns, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. 